Good evening. It's a great blessing to be here with you all, and I want to thank you for the invitation to come here, not just for uh, this week, but for the next. And I know the uh, first time I came across knowing this congregation was from uh, Brother Frank Chester. He was having a meeting in Fayetteville at the uh, Liberty Congregation, and uh, the way he preached and his emphasis upon the Bible, it's something that needs to be commended, because we live in a world today that is devaluing the Bible in exchange for jokes and for stories, and it says a lot about his character, and uh, it says a lot about your character and your dedication to the Word of God, uh, to the teachings that God has given before the foundation of the world, and your dedication to his truth and to his promises. And with that being said, I would like us to turn to the book of 1 Timothy and the third chapter and the 16th verse. Again, that's 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. And in this passage by Paul, we read him tell the young minister Timothy that great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now in this letter of Paul to the young minister Timothy, the young man of God, he instructs this man of God as to what he must know and as what he must do in order to be acceptable within the eyes of God. And he instructs this man as he is about to go throughout his work of the ministry, going through the congregation, setting up elderships, deacons, and the such like, as to what it is and how a Christian needs to conduct themselves. And this is what he puts emphasis on within the first and second chapters, is as to how a Christian has to behave himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Then he goes into chapter 3 in instructing Timothy about the qualifications of elders and deacons. And so in this, uh, leading up to this part in the book, he deals with these two things as to how one is to behave himself and to how the leaders are to behave themselves. And in verse 16, he shows the foundation of how it is that a man is to behave and conduct himself within the church by putting emphasis on the gospel of Jesus Christ, this mystery of godliness that we see in verse 16. And this word, the mystery, the mysterion, as we see within the Greek, it's a subject that he wrote on many times throughout several of his different epistles. Uh, he uses it many times in regards to fragments of uh, the gospel in regards to the redemption of mankind. And he uses the term mystery because it is something that was kept from the foundation of the world to be revealed throughout time. The fullness of the gospel wasn't known at the day of creation, but it was a mystery. It was a mystery when God created the heavens and the earth and he told Abraham that in your seed all the nations of the earth should be blessed. It was a mystery. It wasn't fully known as to how that was to take place. But we also see in Romans chapter 16, 25 and 26 and in the book of Colossians him using this term mystery to describe the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 16, 25 and 26 he would say, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. And so this mystery, Paul explains within verse 25, it is the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And it was a mystery in the sense that it was kept secret for long ages. 
He also brings this up in the book of Colossians as to how he's putting emphasis on the Christ of the church is how many people would put this book. And in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 27, he would say that I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is, the church, of which I became a mystery, uh, minister according to the stewardship of God which was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God made known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this majesty, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, one fundamental characteristic of this mystery that's described by the Apostle Paul is the very fact that it centers around the gospel of Christ. It centers around Jesus Christ himself. And we see this within every aspect of his life and every aspect of his mystery within verse uh, 16, within his ministry, that this is to be acknowledged by the church today. Everything that we do, everything that we teach, everything we say has to center around the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has to center around his character, around his message, around his preaching, and around the preaching of his apostles whom he had chosen. And any kind of preaching that doesn't put its soul, that doesn't center around the gospel of Jesus Christ is not true biblical preaching. And likewise, any kind of Christian life, any kind of Christian who does not live according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the boundaries that are set forth in it, and the pattern that is set throughout the New Testament is not truly a Christian. We see in John chapter 8 and verse 31, the Lord would say that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And so if we claim to be a Christian, yet we don't use the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ as the standard of our life and the standard of our doctrine, we are not truly a Christian. Those aren't my words and those aren't the words of this congregation, but they are the very words of Jesus Christ. And it must be acknowledged if we're going to be found acceptable in the eyes of God. And so I would like for us to speak today of this mystery of godliness and to ask these questions as to what is this mystery of godliness? What are the aspects of this mystery? In what way is it these mysteries relate to Jesus Christ, that these aspects relate to Jesus Christ? And additionally, how is it these characteristics that are given by the Apostle Paul demonstrate the idea that this godly mystery is, as he would say, great? What is it that makes the gospel of Jesus Christ great for us as it did for those of the first century? Now, the first point I would like for us to illustrate today is that the mystery of godliness was uncovered with Christ's incarnation. And this is our very first point that we see within verse 16, is that he was manifested in the flesh. Now, there is a textual variant. If you have a New King James or a King James with you, it would say God is manifested in the flesh. But if you have an ESV or a New American Standard, it will say he who was manifested in the flesh. And these are the two different Greek words, hos or theos, God or he who. It's the difference between two different lines uh, through the transmission of the New Testament text. And while I do think that he who is preferable to God in this text, undoubtedly Paul does have the incarnation of God in mind when he writes this. And this is simply because several times throughout both Paul and other New Testament writers, they believe that Jesus Christ was God incarnate, that he came into this world, took on a body of flesh, and died on the sins, uh, for the sins of mankind on the wooden rugged cross. And we see this within the very birth of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, the writer Matthew would go back to the books of Isaiah and chapters 9, well, 7, 8, and 9, and bring them all together in explaining this passage in which it would say that, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. 
that is God with us. And so here we see Jesus Christ coming in the flesh, dwelling among mankind, being with mankind. And it is at this point that the saying then comes, God is with us. Jesus Christ is with mankind. God is with mankind. Jesus Christ is God. In Romans chapter 9, verse 5, and leading up to verse 5 in this chapter, Paul is speaking of Israel's rejection of the gospel and how he would wish that he would suffer along with the rest of Israel because they were his people. And yet they chose to reject Jesus Christ, and he would show the, the sadness of this by saying that to them, to the Jews, belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Now notice this within, and there are certain translational issues, but I do think that this one has the best reading, the New King James has the best reading as well, that Christ is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The New King James would read that Christ is the eternally blessed God. And so here we have Paul within the book of Romans declaring to us the deity of Jesus Christ throughout the book of Romans. And we also have in 2, Timothy, or 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, and Titus chapter 2, and verse 13, what we would call the Granville Sharp construction, in which two titles are given before a proper name that both of those titles refer to that name. And we would see in 2 Peter chapter 1, 1 particularly that Jesus Christ would be called our God and Savior. And so in all these instances, we see the, Jesus, the deity of Jesus Christ being clearly taught. And it is amazing to me, and it baffles me, to have people who claim to be believers in the Bible rejecting this fundamental, foundational, clear doctrine of who Jesus Christ is and what he came to this earth to do and what the aspects of his personhood truly was. And this is, without a doubt, the greatest, most extraordinary message that has ever entered into human ears. And it's extraordinary because it's something that we truly cannot comprehend within its entirety. It's a lot like the doctrine of the Trinity, for example, in which we see three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, making up one being that's God. We just fully can't comprehend what that is like because we are limited, personal, human, fallible individuals trying to compare ourselves to the eternal, everlasting, all-knowing God Almighty. It's just not possible to try and compare ourselves to who Jesus Christ is. And it becomes very uh, complicated and very hard to comprehend this message whenever it comes down to the fact that Jesus Christ, when he was incarnated, was both 100% God and 100% man. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, we see this in which it would say that in him, it pleased him that in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity should dwell bodily. Now we see two aspects of this, the fullness of deity, 100% deity would dwell in Jesus Christ bodily. He was 100% God and 100% man. Now how do we understand this? Well, simply put, we cannot understand this to the sense that we know what it's like to be 100% God and 100% man. It's a mystery to us. It's great. It's something that we cannot comprehend with our limited, fallible human minds. And I, I like the way that an old Puritan preacher from the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, uh, would describe this, that he was God in miracles most plenteous, but he was man in sufferings most pitiable. He was God and man synonymously. And we see this when we see God learn in Luke chapter 2 and verse 40. We see God cry 
in Luke chapter 19 and verse 41, where Jesus Christ would weep over the city of Jerusalem. We also see it in John chapter 11, verse 35, with him weeping uh, at the grave of Lazarus. We also see God pray in John chapter 17, where he would pray that his disciples would be one, even as him and God, the Father, are one. And so we see all these aspects of God that we've never seen before because he is now man. He's now taken on human characteristics, human personality, something that's never been seen before since the foundation of the world. We see something that's great, it's extraordinary, it's something we cannot comprehend, and it's even, under, it's even harder to understand the greatness of this event when we see truly who God is. And we see this in John chapter 1 and in the preface to this gospel. He would show the greatness of God in, and compare it also to Christ's greatness. And he would also show the greatness of God in relation to Christ's rejection and his suffering. Here we see the infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe taking on his created flesh. He is now entering among his creation. He's now becoming bound by time, bound by knowledge. He is now uh, suffering from hunger, from pain, from loneliness, something God has never before in the history of mankind faced. And we see this within the book of John. And in verses 1 through 5, we see the greatness of Christ, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so here we see the true greatness of who Jesus Christ was, but then when he becomes to be revealed among mankind, as he is sent from God, in verse 9 through 14, we see that the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made known through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of flesh, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only begotten Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so this true light comes into the world, and yet rather than Him being marveled at and accepted and believed upon by the world, the world rather rejects Him. While there was a remnant who did choose to accept Jesus Christ, the Christians, He was rejected by man, and suffered a cruel death on the cross. And this manifestation, it doesn't just pertain to the virgin birth of Christ, but it also pertains to every single aspect of Jesus Christ's life. And especially, we see this incarnation take place in the very truth that Jesus Christ is God throughout His three-year ministry. And we see this many times in that He would characterize the very aspects that God Himself alone characterizes. We see him having the ability to forgive sins in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, when the lame man is being brought through the ceiling, and then he would say, Son, your sins are forgiven you. The Pharisees and the scribes would then say, Who can forgive sins but God alone? And to that I would say, Amen. And then he would then say, Arise and walk, showing the truth that Jesus Christ is God. We also see this through his relationship with the Father. And in John chapter 5, verses 19 through 20, he would say, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. 
and greater mark, uh, works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. And when Christ would show this relationship between the Father, the Son can do nothing without the acceptance of the Father and without the allowance of the Father, and that the two are interchangeable. We see throughout the life of Jesus Christ Him sharing the exact same characteristics of God. We see that they both give life in John chapter 5 and verse 21, that as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. We see that they're both judges, the Father being the supreme judge who handed down the authority to Christ to judge the world. In John chapter 5, verse 22, that the Father judges no one, but has given all the judgment to the Son. We said they both deserve honor. In John chapter 5, verse 23, that they all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And then we see that they are both to be confessed upon. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 22 through 30, 23, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And so we see through the relationship that Christ had with the Father, the two were sharing the same qualities, the same characteristics, and the same abilities because all the Son had was given to Him by the Father. They were in perfect unity, in perfect harmony with one another, and they helped one another and aided one another as Christ went throughout His ministry. We also see that this was revealed throughout His blamelessness in His ministry. God is the only one who is without sin because God cannot sin. And when Christ would come down the flesh, being 100% God and 100% man, He gave Himself up to some of those aspects of God and His fullness in that He is now able to be tempted. He now doesn't know everything as He did before. And we see Christ in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 that we do not have a high priest who is made to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so we see that there are only two individuals who have ever lived on this, in this world who have ever dwelled in this universe who are without sin, the Father and the Son. And obviously we can throw the Holy Spirit in there as well. Then we see that it was revealed throughout His crucifixion. And when our Lord, He bore our sins in His body, He bore it as an atoning sacrifice to God. And the creation then defended the truth of His preaching. Here we have a man defending himself to be God, claiming himself to be the Son of God. And when he would die on that earth, we see the earth quake. We see the veil of the temple being rent in two. We see the dead coming out of the graves and walking. And then the centurion witness would then say, this truly was the Son of God. And so the creation throughout the crucifixion bore witness to the deity of Christ, and yet Christ's own creation won't bear witness when reading his word. And then we see that it was revealed through his resurrection. And this is one thing that a lot of people use as a straw man argument against Christianity, but it is a true claim. People would say that resurrection in and of itself doesn't create deity. I would, uh, I would accept that. Creation in and of itself does not claim deity. There were many people before, such as Lazarus, who were resurrected but were not God. But then we see Jesus Christ, who claimed himself to be God and to be the Son of God, and he was resurrected. And that's the claim to his deity. The very fact that he said who he said he was, and God raised him up from the dead to declare the message and to keep on declaring it. And that is where you can see the deity of Christ being defended throughout the incarnation, throughout the life of Christ, throughout his death, and throughout his resurrection.
A second point that Paul makes within this verse is that the mystery of godliness was defended or vindicated by the Holy Spirit. Now, to be vindicated and to be uh, defended, they're both synonymous terms, but I do have some definitions out here just to understand what this term means. But to vindicate, it simply means to show or prove to be right, reasonable, or justified. Another definition would say to clear someone of blame or suspicion. And again, this goes right back to Christ's preaching. He claimed himself to be God. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed that he had came to save the world from their sins. And now he is going to be defended by the Holy Spirit. He's going to be proved to be true by the working of the Holy Spirit throughout the creation. Now, how is this going to be pl take place? Well, again, this is something that is a, an absolute tremendous enigma of the Incarnation. There was a great need for the Holy Spirit to show that Christ's message was true simply because the message was so absolutely great. Mankind cannot just simply say, I'm both God and man without having something to back that claim up. And so God in his wisdom and in all of his knowledge knew how it was that he was going to show his son's message to be true through the working of the Holy Spirit and through the giving of the word of God. And so we see the Holy Spirit, he worked at three points in time, and these points are uh, some of them much longer than others. But the first point of time in which the Holy Spirit would work would be during the time of the prophets. And this would come from the time of Moses, the prophet of Jew uh, and Gentile, and of specifically Israel all the way to Malachi, in which he would then declare the deity of Christ, the coming of John the Baptist, and the such like within that last prophetic book that we have in the Old Testament. And so we see all throughout the Old Testament Christ's name being written all over it. We see the prophecies about Christ, the prophecies concerning Christ, and we even have places in the Old Testament pertaining to the deity of Christ himself. But we also see within the life of Christ a declaration by the Holy Spirit showing that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. The Holy Spirit defended him while he was preaching the message. He defended him before he was preaching the message. And he defended him after he preached the message. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, we see the Holy Spirit being the working act of the incarnation. The Holy Spirit would come upon Mary. The power of the Most High will overshadow Mary. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Then we see, after the birth of Christ, his baptism in which the Holy Spirit declares that he is the Son of God, in which Jesus Christ is baptized in water, a voice comes from heaven, and he says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, and the Holy Spirit descends upon Christ as a dove. And then again we have in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Jesus Christ professing himself to be God through saying, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And he proves that through the working of the Holy Spirit to cause that man to rise up and walk. And so the Holy Spirit was Jesus Christ's attorney while he was in the flesh, and he was also the attorney when Jesus Christ left and ascended into heaven above, giving the rule, giving the authority to the apostles to declare out through the authority of Jesus Christ and through the working of the Holy Spirit what it is the church was to practice and what it was the church was to believe as they were following the word of Christ. As we see in John chapter 16, verse 13, that the Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth. Christ would send the Holy Spirit down. The Holy Spirit would guide the apostles into what Christ wished his church to do and his church to teach. And in doing such, the Holy Spirit defended the doctrine that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5, we see that our gospel, the doctrine of the apostles, came to you not only in word, 
It didn't just come by the written word of ink and pen saying that Jesus Christ was God, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So they weren't having a blind faith. They weren't just writing it out and not believing, but they had full conviction. But not only that, they came with power and with the Holy Spirit. When they gave that message, when they wrote those words, they proved that their words were true through the working of miracles. And that working of miracles showed that the apostles' message was true. And then also their character showed the gospel of Christ was true, that they knew what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And of course, while we don't have miracles that are at our disposal today to prove that our preaching is true, we do have the word of God that defends in and of itself that it is true. As we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for instruction, for correction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, equipped for every good work. And so while we don't have the Holy Spirit to show miracles to us today, we do have the Word of God that was defended by miracles within that first century and in which we now must live in order to be seen acceptable in the sight of God. And we have to accept this truth because if we reject it, as the author of Hebrews would say in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 25, we cannot flee or escape from the one who warns from above. God has warned us about the danger of rejecting the gospel. He's warned us about the danger of hell through the rejection of His Son. And in that same way, we need to take heed to the Father's instructions through the miraculous, Spirit-produced Word of God that will lead us into all truth. Then third, we see that the mystery of godliness was perceived by the angels. Now, this might not seem as a very important point by Paul whenever it's compared to things such as the Incarnation, things such as the working of the Holy Spirit that proved the Trinity, but I do believe this is something that is extremely important within Paul's writing. The very fact that the angels looked upon Jesus Christ as he was in the flesh with awe and with, un with wonder, it's something we really need to contemplate whenever we view the gospel for ourselves. We see the angels who throughout all eternity were able to see God in his full power and his full assurance, seeing God visibly, hearing him speak, hearing him walk, and seeing the Son by him and the Spirit by him. And at that same time, being able to pontificate upon the wonders of who God is, when Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that caused them to come with overwhelming awe. And how is it to be for us, who all that we see is flesh and blood, we've never seen God, we've never seen the power uh, of God visibly, and yet the angels themselves wonder at the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, the apostle Peter would write about the gospel of Christ, the salvation that came by it. And he would say that concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. And so the angels themselves who are within the presence of God, within all of His glory, longed to search the gospel of Christ. And yet there are many Christians today who, whenever it comes down to Bible study, whenever it comes down to learning of the gospel, of the good news, proclaiming it to others, it becomes more of a chore. It becomes more of a task. It becomes boring. And yet even the angels understood the glory and the power 
and the greatness of the gospel of Christ. And it was perceived by the angels even within the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And it truly demonstrated the authority. And it, it truly demonstrated the place that Christ had within the Godhead. We see that they both praised God at the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2, verse 13. We see them minister to Christ as he was tempted within the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4 and also in Luke chapter or Mark chapter 1. We see them strengthen him when he was troubled about his crucifixion in Luke 22, verse 14. And then we see that they were ready to come destroy the world if it were Christ's desire that he was able to send down legions of angels to destroy the earth if they would not, uh, if he so desired, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 43. And then we see that they instructed the apostles of Christ about his second coming in Acts chapter 1 and verse 11, that they would say that just as he ascended in like manner, he shall so descend from heaven as you saw him going up into heaven. And so the angels were spreaders of the gospels themselves to the apostles, defending the second coming of Christ, defending who Jesus Christ was, helping Christ as he declared that message. And in such way, they were then proceeders of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now Paul's purpose in recollecting the angels and their relationship with the Christ, it was simply put to show the supremacy of the gospel. If here we have these angels who beheld the wonder and the spectacle of God Almighty, if they were at awe, at wonder about the truth of the gospel of God coming in the flesh, if they were longing to look into that gospel, how is it that His creation should view the resurrection and the death of His Son? Seeing the greatness of God's love, the greatness of His mercy, the greatness of His gospel, how is it that we should view it with our carnal minds, with our limited knowledge, as compared to that of the angels above? And it is something that should cause us as Christians to really come into an everlasting faith that's truly as deep as the sea, to where just as we can't calculate the number of our faith, the, the greatness of it, that is the view that we need to have in relation to the gospel of Christ. Now, fourthly, Paul would say that this mystery of godliness uh, was preached to all people. And this is seen throughout two segments of this verse. And we see this mainly within the second part, uh, that this was proclaimed among the nations. And if you have a New King James, it will say that it was proclaimed among the Gentiles, which might be easier for us to understand as to who these nations are. And that it was believed on in the world, a universal sense of the spreading of the gospel. And so while this mystery of Christ, while it was wondered at by individuals, both who were Jews uh, and high in power, the leaders and things such as that, it is equally amazing that it was also perceived and accepted and brought down to someone as low as the Gentiles. Here we have the angels longing for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and while it was also given to those as high up as the angels to wonder at and to think on, the Gentiles themselves, who were as ungodly and as unchristian as could possibly be, they too were able to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 1, he puts primary emphasis on the falling wave uh, of the Gentiles. And we would see this, and many times it's given in reference to homosexuality, to prostitution, to, to the such like, and many times that is what we are doing uh, to condemn what it is that our country is going into. But I would like for us to pontificate on the very fact that those Gentiles are who we are. We are the Gentiles. We were once in those states, and while we might have been, opted been homosexuals or prostitutes or the such like, we too were in a lost state in the eyes of God. 
We too were once as ungodly as the Gentiles were within the first century. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, the Apostle Paul would say, That this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have even given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So every kind of impurity was what the Gentiles partook in, and yet the gospel was given to them. We also see that the Gentiles, they refused to accept the religious thought of that day, but instead they would accept philosophy. Instead they would, they would accept fancy talk and uh, flattering speech and the such like. The things that pertain to God, the things that pertain to the gospel, they chose to reject. And instead they found pleasure in the vain philosophies of mankind. We see that the Gentiles weren't the chosen people of God whenever it came down to the coming of Christ as to how the seed line of Christ would come through the Israelites. And we also see that the Gentiles didn't have the honor of delivering the Old Testament which pertained to the prophecies of Jesus Christ. That honor also belonged to the Jews. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, we see that the Gentiles were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And he would also say in Romans chapter 9 and verse 4 that the Israelites, to them, belonged the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And so throughout all the Old Testament, emphasis was placed upon the Jews as being the people of God, as them being the ones to whom the promises of God were given, not us. As we aren't Jews, the gospel was given to us. But the Old Testament, the prophecies of Christ, those things belong to the Jews. The working of God throughout the patriarchal age, throughout the Mosaic age, belonged to them. But through the mercy of God, the love of His Son, He brought all men to Him. He gave all men of all nations, of all races, able to be heirs of the promises that were chosen throughout the foundation of the world. And Paul would place emphasis on this in Ephesians chapter 3, 1 through 6, that the mystery of godliness was the very fact that salvation was going to be brought to the Gentiles. And that is the redemptive aspect we were speaking of earlier tonight. But in Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 through 29, and this is one most of us know, that as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ or have been clothed with Christ, as some of your translations might read, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither male nor female, there is neither slave nor free, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And this wasn't something that should have been taken by the Jews by surprise. It was something that was spoken of before Christ even came in the flesh. In the book of Isaiah chapter 49, in the second part of verse 6, he would say that I will make you as a light for the nations. And this is a prophetic verse of the Messiah. So he would be made as a light for the nations, the Gentiles, as the New King James would say, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth, to all people, of all nations, of all ethnic groups. And so not only are we Gentiles, but we also were at one point in the same state, the same lost, damnable state as the Gentiles were in Romans chapter 1. There was a time where we were uh, without hope. We didn't have God in this world. We didn't have salvation in this world. We were utterly lost and condemned to a hellfire and brimstone if we chose not to obey the, Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But through His grace, the gospel was given to us as well. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, we do see that we were once in that state, that you who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you also walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were all in that fallen away state, just like the Gentiles were, from passages such as Romans chapter 1. We all were there, but through the grace and the mercy of God Almighty, He had passion upon His creation, and that He would give them a word that would deliver them from the damnation of their souls and save them from their sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And so, what is even more amazing, and that really precedes the greatness of this gospel, of this mystery, of this soteriological truth that salvation has been brought to all of mankind is also the very fact that the gospel's power is able to change mankind. It's able to change man from that damnable, sinful state into a way that is accepted by God. The gospel is so powerful it can turn the most paganistic, heathenistic person into an acceptable relationship with God and turn them into a righteous individual worthy of glory and honor. And this is something that many times is neglected by the religious world today. We lived ungodly. We lived unrighteous. We lived damned in this world. But our hearts were turned from God to our own desires. We chose to reject the truth of God. We chose to reject the ways of God for our own passions, for our own lusts. But the gospel of Jesus Christ was strong enough, was powerful enough, was true enough to change our ungodly lifestyle to a life that is accepted by God and that one that through His grace and through His mercy will bring us into an eternal abode with Him. In Acts chapter 28, verse 28, we see this being manifested through the Gentiles' acceptance of the gospel, these paganistic Gentiles. And we see the religious Jews of that day, they go before Paul while he's in prison asking him of the gospel, and Paul preaches the gospel. But the Jews refuse it, and they reject it, whereas the Gentiles were pleading with Paul to study with them, to teach them. They were hungry for the word of God. Even though they lived as ungodly in days before, now they were wanting to do what God wanted them to do. And in Acts chapter 28, verse 28, Paul chose the people he was going to focus his ministry on. He knew who was hungry for the gospel, and it wasn't the religious zealots of the day, but it was the men who lived ungodly before. It was the men who were shunned by society as being heathens, as being paganists, as being uh, immoral as, as anything. And so he would then say, Therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And so unlike many world religions that we come across today where they try to force converts to obey their doctrine by the sword and by the gun, we don't have that. And even unlike many denominations and many liberals within the Lord's church today who choose to try and convert souls to Christ by concerts, by games, by activities, by jokes, and yet they see no godliness, they see no growth, they see no spiritual aspects of their ministry, we have the Word of God that has the power to save men from their sins. Games don't do it. Concerts don't do it. And obviously guns don't cause reasonable, honest, sincere converts. 
but the gospel of Christ does. And the preaching of that word grows the church and converts souls to Christ. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul would say that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. How many people can say that today? But I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for there is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so the gospel of Christ is all that we need to save souls, to bring the world to Christ. And we need to put away all these foolish activities that so many seem to be taking up. And if we haven't taken it up, stay away from it as much as possible. And then fifthly, the mystery of godliness, it was fulfilled, it was completed, it was brought to completion with the ascension of Jesus Christ. And we see this when Paul would say that Jesus was taken up in glory. Now, the ascension of Jesus Christ was just as important as the crucifixion. It was just as important. If the ascension never took place, the redemption of mankind never would have taken place. Just as if the crucifixion never took place, the, resurrect, the uh, redemption of mankind never would have taken place. And it came to this completion because when Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, he poured his blood out upon the mercy seat after that ascension. In Hebrews chapter 9, and we see this within verses 12 and also in verse 24, that he entered once into the holy places, not by means of blood of uh, bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So he entered once for all into the holy places. Well, what are these holy places? Well, if you skip ahead in this chapter to verse 24, you see what that holy place was where the sin offering of Jesus Christ was poured out. He uh, entered not into holy places made with hands. He didn't enter into the temples and the such like that existed on this earth, which are copies or antitypes of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So Jesus Christ is crucified for the sins of mankind. He is raised up. And then he ascends to the glory of Father, pours out his blood into heaven itself, thus securing an eternal redemption for us. And after that, sitting at the right hand of God to rule over the creation and to rule over the church of Jesus Christ, to rule over his own church that he purchased with his own blood, as he was given all authority in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, and also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 27, that God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And so it was after this ascension that Christ's church, it was established. The body of Jesus Christ, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, was put together, over which he is head, and in which salvation is found, Ephesians chapter 5, and verse 23. And so, as the Apostle Peter would say, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. This great mystery of godliness has now been revealed to each and every one of us, and it's something we can now study for ourselves. It's something we can reveal for ourselves throughout the Word of God, throughout the gospel of Jesus Christ, and throughout the writings in the New Testament. It's something that, while it's never been known before to mankind, it's now known to us. And it's something we can now know in order to see what it is that we must do to be saved, and how it is that we can remain saved. Now, as to what it is that a man must do to be saved, the gospel of Jesus Christ is something that must be obeyed. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17. It's something that has to be obeyed. 
and we would even see that Jesus Christ will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8. And so how is it that one obeys the gospel? We see that the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's historical fact, and so how does one obey historical fact? It would be seemingly impossible, but we do it symbolically through taking off our sins through repentance, through believing on His name, confessing that sweet name of Jesus Christ, and being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, His Son. And that in doing that, as we come down into the waters as a man dead in sin, we then come down into the waters, die to those sins, and we are then raised up to walk in the newness of life. And so we see the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus being uh, renewed and being reenacted throughout the act of baptism. And as we see, baptism would wash away our sins, Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. Baptism is what causes us to put on Christ, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27. Baptism is for the remission of sins. And that through reenacting that great gospel of Jesus Christ, the great mystery that has been now made known to mankind, we are now being able to obey Him and to become children of Him, even though we are not Jew, even though we are Gentile, and that salvation has now been given to all men. But of course, if you have obeyed the gospel, there is still a chance that you can turn back to the former lusts of your life, that you can fall away from the grace that was once bestowed upon you, to walk and trample on the blood of Jesus Christ who died for your sins and for my sins. And for that, God has also given us a plan. He has given us a law of pardon. Forgive us if we have ever fallen away, if we have ever stumbled in His law. And we see this within Acts chapter 8 with Simon the sorcerer. He fell away from the Word of God. After the working of the Holy Spirit, he wanted uh, for money purposes, for selfish, conceited purposes. And Paul or Peter would tell Simon the sorcerer, that he is to repent and pray to God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. And so it might be that you haven't obeyed the gospel, and it might be that you have, but have fallen away after the former ways of the Gentiles that we've read about so much tonight. And the way that that can be done is through repenting of those sins, making your life with God, praying to Him for forgiveness, as He is gracious and merciful to forgive you of those sins. And of course, if you haven't obeyed the gospel, what is keeping you? The grace of God is always open. His doors of salvation are always open. And of course, while you don't have to obey within these hours, there's always a time that you can make your life right with God. Be sure to contact us, and we can help you any way that we can. And if we have any need, come now as together we stand and as we sing. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. We do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptation? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take 
Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden? Comfort with a load of care. Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. Please be seated. 